Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Book Podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler Holtz. Today, we'll be talking with the authors, Todd McFert and David Schaefer, authors of Abolitionists of the Most Dangerous Kind. And please um, tell me your names again so everybody can get that clear. I am Todd Malfalt. And I'm David Schaefer. Great. Let's start by having you tell the audience a few words about yourself and how you got started on this project. And the book is called Abolitionists of the Most Dangerous Kind, James Montgomery and His War on Slavery. Go ahead, Todd. You're older than me. I uh, was a, a teacher. I taught for 37 years and I'm now retired. Um, and originally I was researching, um, the story of a man, uh, named Charles Leonhardt. He was a Prussian, uh, immigrant who came to the United States, uh, around 1854. And he came to Kansas territory in 1857, uh, because he wanted to join the struggle against slavery and, he became a member of a secret anti-slavery group known as the Danites. Uh, through that, he met James Montgomery, and uh, Montgomery ended up leading a splinter group of these Danites uh, because he they were ready for action, and the uh, the current leader of of the Danites at that time was James Lane, and they felt that he he just wasn't behind that kind of uh, action. So, like I said, Montgomery led a breakaway group that began kind of some violent actions, and I argue in that book that it was that small group that became the core of what later become known as the Jayhawkers. Yeah, very good. And then Todd published a book called The Secret Danites. So that really kind of, we built on that research with this book. Now, in terms of my background, uh, David Schaefer, I was a park ranger with the National Park Service for 32 32 years at the historic sites in Kansas, Hawaii, Missouri, Puerto Rico, Oklahoma, and Texas. And one of the through lines with a lot of the historic sites was uh, this long struggle for uh, freedom and equality uh, of many people. And I started my career with the National Park Service at Fort Scott National Historic Site in Kansas, where the first Kansas Colored Infantry mustered in, the first unit of black soldiers to see combat during the Civil War there in western Missouri. So James Montgomery was somebody um, I really wanted to know more about, um, not only becoming a uh, Danite and then a Jayhawker in Kansas fighting against slavery before the Civil War, but then leading black soldiers during the Civil War. So basically, Todd and I had very similar interests, I would say, in terms of Kansas history, Underground Railroad, the the uh, 
fight to end slavery, issues of the Civil War. And so we decided to work on this project together. Now, in your book, you talk about the Fugitive Slave Act. Why did Colonel Montgomery want to deviate from that? Um, well, either, either of us could answer that, but I'll, I'll take a first shot and let Todd follow up. The Fugitive Slave Act passed in 1850 was a great victory for white Southerners as they had this powerful new law where they could retrieve uh, freedom seekers, enslaved people who were freeing North, and people were required in the North to help um, round up these fugitive slaves. And if you helped someone on the Underground Railroad, you're committing a felony. And Montgomery in Kansas, as he became more radicalized late in the 1850s up into 1860, um, he realized that resisting the Fugitive Slave Act with Missouri as a slave state right across the border, it could really ramp up tensions, could have a real political impact. And plus, Montgomery came to believe that slavery was just wrong. And Montgomery helped really spearhead efforts in southern Kansas to resist enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act. Yes, I I would build on that a little bit. Um, I mean, Montgomery, first of all, had uh, very strong religious beliefs, um, which kind of grounded his strong sense of right or wrong. Um, But uh, what Dave said was correct, that at some point uh, towards the end of 1859, perhaps, but certainly by 1860, uh, he and Uh, George L. Stearns, one of the strongest secret six backers of John Brown, um, they had elected to to try another uh, another strategy um, to almost weaponize the Underground Railroad um, and 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 its propaganda value, so to speak. And that was by Montgomery and. a, a group of uh, other uh, Jayhawkers or uh, radical abolitionists in Lynn County that they would try to thwart the enforcement of the fugitive slave law by keeping freedom seekers in Lynn County to show that the federal government could not enforce it on the frontier. And uh, I think that their hope was that that could spark a new crisis um, like I said, that's that's about December of 1860. Now, in Chapter 1, entitled From Ohio to Kansas, 1840 to 1855, tell us about that connection, Ohio to Kansas. And then you talk about Anthony Burns. So tell those stories. Uh, you want to go ahead there, Dave? Well, um, in terms of Montgomery... Um, he was born in Ohio, northeastern Ohio, um, near Lake Erie. Uh, it was very much the frontier, um, not easy to even uh, survive back in those years. And as time went by, that area became very anti-slavery. Now, interestingly, Montgomery, um, he was, I believe, the ninth child, if I remember right. Anyway, he had a big family, and he ended up moving to Kentucky as a young man in his 20s. He actually married the daughter of a slaveholding family. Now, tragically, she died, leaving him a widower with two children. Then he remarried a woman named Clarinda Evans. And Montgomery ended up moving his family from the slave state of Kentucky to the slave state of Missouri. 
and then on into Kansas when it opened up for um, settlement after the Kansas-Nebraska Act was passed in 1854, and he uh, established a farm in eastern Kansas and Lynn County. And early on, he was definitely more interested, I think, in uh, starting a farm, you know, not really interested in necessarily fighting in the free state cause to uh, the voters moving into Kansas territory would decide whether Kansas would be a free state or slave state. Um, but he got caught up in the violence eventually and became very much a radical abolitionist. And do you want to talk about Anthony Burns, Todd, or add on to that? Um, well, I mean, uh, you know, Anthony, the Anthony Burns case um, really affected a, another member of the the secret six group, uh, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, and uh, kind of in in conjunction with Montgomery uh, meeting Stearns, but but actually before that, having contact with this secret six group, who after John Brown's execution, they were looking for uh, other ways, other people that could kind of pick up the mantle and uh, Montgomery became that man. Um, so the, the Burns case, like I said, had really affected Thomas Wentworth Higginson. Uh, it, it filled him with a desire to not back down again when, when confronted with, uh, you know, a, a chance for action. So, with, with Montgomery assuming a wider role on a national level through this contact with the Secret Six, then, um, like I said, it, it kind of brings a lot of that to a head with, with the, the leaders back in the Boston area with these men on the, the Kansas frontier who had become radicalized by... Uh, the illegal voting, by the violence, uh, by, you know, uh, uh, destructive raids. So, yeah. And if I could just add on to that, Todd, uh, in terms of the, as Todd was saying, uh, Montgomery, he networked with other radicals. And one was Thomas Wentworth Higginson in Massachusetts, who had been a Unitarian pastor, but he became very radicalized. And sort of ironically, in May of 1854, Higginson and other black and white men tried to free Anthony Burns from a courthouse in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, Burns had actually fled from Virginia and was a fugitive slave, and he was arrested by a deputy and other men, and he was eventually uh, shipped back south. Higginson and some men had tried to bust him out of the jail there. It was, was uh, did not work. Um, but it was a very militant action against the Fugitive Slave Act. And Burns eventually went back to Virginia. Eventually, though, his uh, freedom was purchased. And that was uh, May of 1854. And just a few months later, Montgomery was on his way to Kansas with his family. And then Higginson and Montgomery, somewhat iron ironically, they would be commanders of the first two black regiments in the Department of the South in South Carolina. So they're sort of war on slavery overlap with each other. The, the Higginson and Montgomery are very different people. Absolutely. Now, chapter two, you talk about the Free State Hotel. Tell us what happened during that time to that hotel. 
You want to take that one, Todd? Well, um, the the hotel was uh, destroyed in, um, you know, during this pro-slave uh, raid. Um, yeah, what else? What else do you want to say there, Dave? Yeah, well, in uh, yeah, in May of eighteen fifty six, and eighteen fifty six was a real crucial year when pro-slavery and free state for- forces actually began to clash, beginning at the Battle of Blackjack and other interactions. And very uh, critically, in May of eighteen fifty six, uh, this pro-slavery force raided Lawrence in the Kansas Territory, which was seen as kind of the the free state hub, the abolitionist uh, community, and they burned. Uh, hotel on Massachusetts Street, the Free State Hotel, among other things, was very much an act of violence. And uh, just a short time after that, John Brown and some of his sons and other men ended up killing pro, five pro-slavery men. Uh, it's called the Pottawatomie Creek Massacre there in Kansas. So the violence that became eventually known as Bleeding Kansas really got going in 1856. And very crucially for Montgomery, in early September of that year, a pro-slavery force went through part of Northern Bourbon County and Lynn County. And Montgomery lived in Lynn County and the destruction of some of Montgomery's, you know, neighbors properties by the pro-slavery force really Todd and I argue was a real turning point that began to radicalize Montgomery to be very much an, this anti-slavery warrior as time went by. Yes. And I, I think you could argue that the destruction of the, the free state hotel and, and, and that raid on Lawrence was a turning point for John Brown as well. Um, you know, he had he had hoped that there would be violent confrontations, and um, you know, he took that event kind of at, <laughs> as his own uh, signal to begin that um, there in eight, eight, May of eighteen fifty six. Now, you talk about the dangers of being an abolitionist during this time. Tell us how they had to disguise themselves. Go ahead, Todd. Well, um, I mean, uh, if you've you've heard the the saying, uh, sound on the goose, which was coded, a coded message for uh, for people who were were trying to find out, you know, what your uh, political beliefs were on the slavery question there here on the Kansas frontier. Um, but uh, you're right. Um, people were very, uh, sometimes very coy uh, about, um, you know, trying to not say too much. Um the, the secret Danite organization, for instance, uh, they had uh, secret uh, secret code. They had secret signals that they could flash to one another for, for recognition. But on the pro-slave side, they also had uh, secret groups, secret pro-slave groups uh, known as uh, the Blue Lodges, um, and some others. Uh, so they're, they were more sophisticated than I think the average person today would give them credit for in those days. Yeah, the, uh, yeah go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say just real quick, um, to add on what the, to Todd said, 
for James Montgomery specifically, the, the initial uh, battles or, or really violence took place in the northern part of Kansas Territory. But very courageously, in the spring of 1855, Montgomery stood up at a public meeting and made his free state views known, even though uh, that area of Kansas initially was more pro-slavery in terms of the population. So uh, we see Montgomery standing up um, basically as an, uh, a believer in anti-slavery, that Kansas should not become a, a slave state uh, early on. Now, in Chapter 3, the original Jay Harker, you talk about the connections of the people who were free and the state immigrants. Tell us more about those connections. Um, yes. Could you maybe restate that question? I'm. Yes. You know, in Chapter 3, you talk about the connections of the people who were free, and then you talk about the immigrants who just came into that area. What were some of those connections? Um, do you want to start that one, Dave? Yeah, I think um, it's real important to remember that when Kansas first opened for settlement in 1854, Missouri was right next door. And okay. the initial flow into Kansas came from those Missourians. They overwhelmed the polling places, and initially they sort of had a toehold. But really critically, by 1857 and 1858, more and more people moving into Kansas territory were coming in from free states. Uh, farmers, like some of my ancestors from Illinois, uh, started moving into Kansas. So uh, what happened in 1857 especially, we had the, the pro-slavery legislature. They actually put together what was called the Lecompton Constitution or pro-slavery constitution. But they saw the handwriting on the wall and they really wanted to pass it through quickly because more and more free state people were moving in who uh, a lot of them probably were looking more at this getting, you know, land, you know, starting a, a new life, getting a farm. And we're not necessarily interested in the slavery question or being really rabid abolitionists. I would say only a small percentage of the people moving to Kansas were uh, radical abolitionists like Montgomery became. Yes, I think Dave, Dave made a good point um, initially that the Missourians being so close of proximity that uh, they had a, a definite advantage early and uh, that allowed them to uh, capture the very first territorial legislature. But, you know, after 1857, um, more free state settlers moved in, um, pro-slave uh, backers, they, they had they had more difficulty convincing um, pro-slave settlers to move to Kansas. So, like I said, from 57 onward, uh, their free state immigration would outnumber pro-slave immigration. Um, yeah. Now, in Chapter 4, you talk about the freemen. Um, the fight that took place and they took Johnson's property. What happened during that time? You want to take that, Todd? Um, right. This is uh, in 1857 in Lynn County. Well, I think early 1858, I think what we're referring to is that uh, a man named Johnson was roughed up by some of the pro-slavery people. And I think it's real important, if I just jump in here, to point out that Montgomery lived in Lynn County, 
near just a, about a little over four miles west of what became Mound City, the county seat of Lynn County. But the next county south was Bourbon County, and Fort Scott was the primary community or the, the county seat of Bourbon County eventually, a former army post. But it was firmly pro-slavery in terms of the population. So Montgomery and his free state co- colleagues um, viewed Fort Scott as sort of the enemy camp. Um, because of the U.S. District Court there, uh, Joseph Williams, who ruled on the uh, usually in favor of pro-slavery people. According to Montgomery, a free state man had had little chance of being found innocent, and a pro-slavery man had little chance of be found being found guilty. And the first um, really confrontation was, I believe, it was in February 1858, when uh, Montgomery showed up um, with uh, Captain Baines, and and they uh, wanted to. Um, deal with the guys who had roughed up this man named uh, Johnson. In chapter five, you talk about Kansas radicalism and you say it, it went national July, 1858, December, 1859. Tell us about Montgomery joining the Brown, John Brown's um, militant group. Well, Yes, in the, in the summer of 1858, Brown did come to Lynn County. Uh, he already had contacts there, um, and he uh, Montgomery actually joined his group temporarily. Um, they they worked together to try to uh, strengthen the border. To the, they actually built some earthen forts. Uh, this would be kind of in response to the uh, the Meridazine massacre that occurred uh, in May. Um, and uh, like I said, one of these earthen forts was perhaps roughly maybe only a mile uh, east of Montgomery's cabin. Um, so they were, were trying to build, like I said, a, a string of outposts. Um, and, and Brown was, well, his, his plans back east at Harper's Ferry had been kind of uh, found out. And some people believe that he came uh, back to Kansas to kind of throw officials off the scent. And if I could just add on to that, that John Brown is... I would say the most famous militant abolitionist in American history, largely because in October 1859, he and a handful of men uh, raided Harper's Ferry, Virginia, it's now West Virginia, at the U.S. Armory and Arsenal to get weapons to lead this kind of slave uprising. Uh, Really radical event. Brown and, and a lot of his men were captured and executed for treason and murder. And it was a real, um, significant event leading up to the Civil War. This event infuriated white Southerners. And it's interesting, Brown and Montgomery, as Todd was saying, really did uh, cooperate in 1858, um, although they were different uh, personalities. You know, sometimes it's been said, uh, we've read that uh, people claim that Montgomery was a lieutenant of Brown. Actually, they were two independent men. They had similar anti-slavery goals. Um, in fact, we quote uh, a man who knew both Brown and Montgomery, and he wrote, Montgomery is a very different man from John Brown. Brown and company sat apart, de- determined to fill his mission in the world at all, at all hazards. 
Montgomery sat at a table and ate his dinner like other people, where Brown depended on the despotic on his despotic will. And this is a man named James Winchell. He said Montgomery quote relied upon the influence of common sense. So they did. Uh, cooperate. Uh, but Montgomery, I would say, was more pragmatic. He would never lead sort of this, uh, you know, suicide raid on this uh, uh, place like Harper's Ferry. Um, so um, the, Montgomery, though, was similar in Brown in terms of believing that slavery was an evil that had to be dismantled. And Montgomery became, of course, uh, a militant abolitionist himself, but uh, s- someone who... Uh, as I, as I would say, it was more pragmatic than Brown. And I'd like to add another thing, uh, you know, to address the part about going national. When you look at the voting in Kansas in 1858, um, it was apparent that this free state majority was going to win out at the polls. Um, so when, when you think about it, what Montgomery had started fighting for, um, along with a lot of these other radical abolitionists, had really come to fruition by 1858. They, they were going to win the battle at the, at the polls. So for Montgomery and, and some of these other radicals, they had a decision to make. Were they going to just kind of say, retire to what they had moved to Kansas for, or were they going to stay involved or, or actually become more involved in, in this struggle against slavery? And for Montgomery, he, he is kind of wrestling with himself through the end of 58 and the beginning of 59, and he finally decides that he will decide to take his abolitionist struggle that had been, you know, more local and, and take that struggle national. In chapter six, you talk about the last day of the year at Montgomery's home. I thought you did such a great description of that. Tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the things that, uh, well, actually several things were in mind when Todd and I were working on the book. First, we, we wanted to tell, obviously, Montgomery's War on Slavery. We also wanted to connect it to the larger events that was going on that you know led to this massive civil war, but also some of the personal details. Uh, Montgomery, in addition to, of course, being this radical militant abolitionist, was also a husband, a father, um, and a farmer. He loved working on his farm, and uh, we just wanted to kind of paint a little picture there of um, Montgomery probably sort of what what his cabin would have been like with all those kids. <laughs> and also, we think um, quite possibly Montgomery, as uh, 1859 was ending and 1860 beginning, that um, there were quite possibly were fugitive slaves staying with Montgomery. So as, as Todd was saying, as M- Montgomery became more radicalized and involved in the Underground Railroad, he actually sheltered uh, people actually in his own cabin. So we wanted to kind of give a, a little sense of uh, all those people um, gathered in that uh, cabin. Yeah, I would like to follow up on that. Um, yeah, it, it is a great description there with the 
empty cases of Sharps rifles. And but I think it also points to another another thing that maybe a lot of people don't think about. And I've been bringing this point up with some different groups that I've spoken to lately. And that is that, you know, James Montgomery is out and about. He's he's gone for weeks at a time, sometimes from home. And that put a tremendous responsibility on the shoulders of his wife, Clorinda. And I like to point out to groups that you can you can include his wife, Clorinda, in this most dangerous abolitionist circle because without her support at home, uh, and as Dave said, uh, you know, um, she was tasked with with running the household um, and if freedom seekers were there, then, I mean, you know, she was, she was part and parcel of that. So, uh, like I said, I would like to, to, to point out that Clorinda had, ha- she had to support, uh, James Montgomery, uh, pretty much a hundred percent in his endeavors. Absolutely. What a great point. Um, uh, you talk about the story of Winnie and Elias. How do they connect with Montgomery? Go ahead, Todd. Well, yes, uh, you know, Arkansas had passed a law um, to try to crack down on uh, freed African-Americans in Arkansas and uh, making it harder and harder. They would have to, uh, you know, uh, sign themselves on for a year. uh, And uh, at, at the end of that time, if they tried to remain in Arkansas, they would basically go back to a condition of enslavement. So, uh, Winnie had decided that, uh, that, that, that she and Elias would not hang around for that. And, um, you know, through, through this kind of, uh, slave grapevine is, is what historical sources call it. Um, she had heard about Kansas territory and, uh, she and Elias, uh, left Arkansas and, made it into uh, southern Kansas where they uh, found refuge on a farm there in Lynn County that would be um, perhaps three or four miles uh, from Montgomery's farm. Um, And her uh, husband uh, was still enslaved and he when he heard that they were had reached freedom in Kansas territory, he decided that he would attempt to join them, which he did. Um, and I think it, it points to uh, this part of this other the thing that we had talked about, um, that there were other uh, freedom seekers who at, at that time were also living in Lynn County. And if I could just add on to Todd, exactly right, Todd. Um, the the story of the of the Campbells, Winnie and the son Elias and, and the husband Lewis, it really points to this kind of larger story of the agency of African Americans to reach for freedom whenever they could, before the war, during the Civil War. Um, and Kansas was kind of this free state mecca. Uh, Arkansas, Missouri, and the Indian Territory all had slavery over around 200,000 enslaved people at the time. 
And when uh, Arkansas passed that law that said that even free blacks could not remain in the in the state, um, and there was this movement. And in fact, during the Civil War, about 12,000 um, African-Americans fled to Kansas. And one last little point about Lewis Campbell, we talk about it in Chapter 7 also. He actually was um, abducted by a pro-slavery force by a group of men in 1861 before the Civil War began. And so he actually was enslaved twice and had to, to free himself on another occasion to reunite with his family. Um, so it really shows you the, the desire of enslaved people for freedom. And they had plenty of collaborators once they got to Kansas, uh, men and women who would help them. Chapter 7, Every Man a Soldier, January through August 1861. Now, you tell us the story about Union men being driven from their homes because they voted for Lincoln. There's more. <laughs> right. Um, you know, Missouri was a microcosm uh, of, of the struggle that was going on, you know, between families and friends and communities uh, across a good part of the United States. But, but Missouri, uh, like I said, yes, it was, it, it was even to a stronger degree. And um, Montgomery and, and, and other free state men had, they had gotten reports that there were union men uh, inside of Missouri who would like to leave, and of course, uh, the, the another motivator behind that is that uh, they they might actually join these uh, newly formed regiments in Kansas. So if if they could assist those people and those families to get out of Missouri safely, then that would be a win win for. Uh, the Kansas side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Chapter eight. Tell us about the health of Montgomery. You start talking about that a little, and then um, tell us about Fort Scott. Well, yes, Montgomery's health. Uh, when when the troops first entered uh, Missouri. Um, as what's known as the Lane Brigade in September of 1861, Montgomery had to stay behind. And uh, so his health problems um, probably related to some kind of asthmatic type of symptoms um, began to crop up there during that initial campaign. And uh, later on, uh, say in the the next month, when uh, the men had been in the saddle at times for sixty hours, uh, his health began to uh, to really deteriorate during that time. Absolutely, and if I could just add on to what Todd said there in terms of his health, we really uh, have a good description of that in. Um, an interview with a New York Times reporter Montgomery had. This is when Colonel was uh, Montgomery was Colonel of the Third Kansas, and he and the Kansas troops were in Western Missouri destroying 
farms and burned a few towns and freeing hundreds of enslaved people. And um, actually, the the person, uh, Frank Wilkie, New York Times correspondent, um, actually says he shook an emaciated hand of Montgomery. Then he says at some at length, some remark introduced the question of slavery in the instant and in, in the instant after a pair of cavernous dark eyes were turned full upon me as he waxed eloquent upon the emancipation of the Negro and his hope of a millennium at hand in which they would gain a political and social equality with the white men. This is Montgomery. And uh, according to Wilkie, Montgomery was very thin, was coughing incessantly, and actually thought he had maybe a short time to live. But a real critical part of the interview is this. Montgomery said, if our boys thought that this war had any other object than to give freedom to the slave, they would everyone go home tomorrow. And that really points to something very significant about Montgomery as part of what was called the Kansas Brigade or the Lane Brigade. Uh, James H. Lane was leading that these Kansas troops in western Missouri in 1861 were freeing every enslaved person they could get to or helping people. And this was well, well over a year before the Emancipation Proclamation. So these Kansas troops were fighting a different war, not just to restore the Union, but to end slavery. So it was a very significant part of the story we felt. And Deidre, Deidre, to follow up, you mentioned Fort Scott. I think it's fair to point out that Fort Scott had gone through a remarkable transition in the spring of 1861 from, uh, you know, even here, right that last month of 1860, uh, where a majority of people would would see it as a pro-slavery town. Um, but when the war started uh, with the military post there, it had, like I said, it had undergone a radical transformation and would now be seen as a, a headquarters for uh, free staters. And, and a lot of these free staters, a lot of these Union troops that would be in the Fort Scott vicinity, would they would have had a background during this bleeding Kansas. So they were, uh, to be honest, they were kind of radicalized free state troops, which is one reason that they were so actively pursuing uh, freeing enslaved people in Missouri. Thank you. Um, the next chapter, a Kansas Jayhawker forms a black regiment in Dixie, April 1862, May 1863. Tell us about Montgomery, his discharge, and how did he start this black regiment? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great story. Um, Montgomery, uh, once the um, a black regiment began to be formed in Kansas through the leadership of uh, James H. Lane, it would become the first Kansas colored infantry. And there's quite a story of uh, intrigue. Uh, the Kansas governor, Charles Robinson, was anti-Lane. And anyway, Montgomery, um, because of friction with Lane, they had fallen out. He had no hope of commanding the first Kansas colored infantry. So Montgomery uh, said goodbye to his wife and family. And in late 1862, he went to Washington, D.C., he even met President Abraham Lincoln <laughs> to kind of plead his case. And uh, it was very critical. The Emancipation Proclamation in Jan uh, that went into effect January 1st, 1863, authorized the War Department, U.S. War Department, to begin to enlist black men as uh, soldiers. 
And so Montgomery fortuitously met with uh, Union General David Hunter, who had served in Missouri and Kansas previously, knew Montgomery. And on January 13, 1863, Montgomery got permission to form a regiment of black soldiers in South Carolina. So you basically, hey, you're a colonel now. You go down and find enough troops to form a black regiment. So he got to Hilton Head, South Carolina, the Department of South Headquarters, late January 1863. And he uh, ended up getting his first recruits of all places down at Key West, uh, over 150 men. And uh, eventually, as we tell in Chapter 9, uh, took command of this growing regiment. Um, he participated in the occupation of Jacksonville, Florida um, in the March of that year. And he really helped put his stamp on forming these guys and kind of having religious fervor to make these men uh, soldiers and then eventually citizens after the war. Chapter 10, A Glorious Consummation, the Combe River, June 1st through 3rd, 1863. Now, this is where you talk about Harriet Tubman along with Colonel Montgomery. Tell us more about that connection. Yeah, it was, uh, it's, it's really, uh, Montgomery, uh, he met all these interesting, fascinating people. John Brown, he met Ralph Waldo Emerson before the war, uh, Abraham Lincoln, Harriet Tubman. Um, and what happened is uh, there's a fascinating raid Montgomery made in early June 1863 up uh, the Cumbie River. It's spelled, it should be like Combehe, but the locals there pronounce it Cumbie. And Montgomery befriended uh, Harriet Tubman, of course, was famous before the Civil War for leading uh, people on the Underground Railroad to freedom. But during the war uh, in 1862, she got down to South Carolina and was helping the Union war effort um, as kind of a nurse and doing other things. But she also helped gather intelligence from uh, men and women who had uh, reached uh, Port Royal or Beaufort, South Carolina, Hilton Head, that region where the, the Union forces were. And she was able to help James Montgomery, Colonel Montgomery, and other officers with intelligence. And this is a really remarkable raid. We tell it in Chapter 10. We're using three steamboats and both white soldiers and black soldiers. And uh, they went up the Cumbie River. Unfortunately, one of the steamboats uh, grounded. They had to leave it behind. But the other two, uh, the John Adams and the Harriet A. Weed, with artillery on board, and... uh, Montgomery was right in the pilot house there with Harriet Tubman, and they, it's a, kind of a long story, but basically they raided up the river, surprised the Confederates, uh, the slaveholders, the, the planters there. Uh, they torched seven plantations, freed over 700 people, and they destroyed everything that they could, the Union forces. It was really an act of total war. It really shows an, an escalation in the war on slavery Montgomery had, this really grim resolve to inflict punishment on, on Southern slaveholders. And they burned uh, the homes of the, uh, the planters. Uh, they burned the rice barns. They flooded the rice fields so the crops would be ruined. Um, and uh, it's really remarkable. And Harriet Tubman was right there with Montgomery uh, the whole way. There's a wonderful description where she talks about, uh, you know, the people heading to the steamboats, carrying everything they could. And there's a little humor there, too. They, she describes one woman walking with two pigs, an enslaved person heading into the steamboat with a, a white pig and a black pig, and they named them Jeff Davis and Beauregard. <laughs> but anyway, it was just a really uh, amazing story, and it really shows Harriet Tubman as very, very 
active and a remarkable uh, person, especially in that era, for an African-American woman to collaborate with Union officers to carry off this very destructive raid that freed over 700 people and uh, provided about 150 uh, black men to serve in Montgomery's regiment as well. Now, you talk about Joshua Nicholas and how his property was destroyed. Was he trying to get money back because everything was destroyed? Yeah, that's a very good story. Yeah, there was uh, one of the plantation owners there, a man named Joshua Nichols. He wrote a couple articles to the Charleston Mercury newspaper describing this Cumbie River raid, and they're just wonderful descriptions. And he describes that uh, he actually went to the uh, slave quarters and told them, hey, the Yankees are coming, let's go to the woods and hide. And he said they all pretended like they would do that, but all of them ran away. And then what he eventually did, he tried, he submitted to the Confederate government to get reimbursed for his losses. And interestingly, he had this description and lists all 73 African-American men and women who he had enslaved. And he was shocked that not, not one stayed loyal to the rebel, as he put it. He was just amazed that they all got on that Yankee steamboat to freedom. And he uh, did seek reimbursement from the Confederate government for all of his losses. And we have a list of that in the book for his home, his personal library, all these other buildings, and the property of all the enslaved people. And it was just a huge sum of money that uh, he ended up um, basically losing so much. But it really shows a, a disconnect that I think slaveholders had with the enslaved people where he was just, you know, thought they were much happier than they were, but all, all able-bodied uh, enslaved people on his plantation, all of them got onto that uh, steamboat to freedom. Now, what did that sound of the steamboat mean to the African-Americans? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, when the two steamboats were docked uh, along um for the Harriet Weed, it was docked at Longbrow Plantation. The John Adams with Montgomery and Harriet uh, Tubman went on up to the where the Cumbie Ferry had been, uh, the Port World of South Car- or, uh, Charleston Road, where there was a pontoon bridge. But to notify, this is awesome, the enslaved people that the Yankees were there, they blew this loud piercing steam whistles, that harsh steam whistle like you've heard in the movies, and it could be heard for a huge distance. And the word had spread that when they heard that, um, they could get to freedom. And actually, uh, General Rufus Saxton, who was a Port Royal commander, U.S. commander, he had made note of this in November 1862, that the enslaved people would know that slave, or know that that steam whistle meant freedom. And we have wonderful descriptions like Captain William Apthorpe, who commanded Company B in Montgomery's uh, Black Regiment. He has some wonderful descriptions. And he said the people began coming. You could just see them off in the distance, carrying possessions on their heads, everything that they could get to uh, reach freedom. So uh, that it was really interesting how that steam whistle, of course, they didn't have, you know, telephones and, you know, cell phones and all that. But that steam whistle was so loud and so piercing <laughs> that that was the sound of freedom for those uh, enslaved people. And I, I think that, that that is a great question, Deidre. I think, you know, for people, for, for whether it's an audience for or for anyone trying to uh, 
to read this history and and get in touch with it, you know, something like that, it it, it just conjures up, you know, the the vision and and is such a a touchstone for people that that maybe they can almost feel feel the moment there. Yeah. Yes, by reading this, uh, I could really feel that moment. Mm-hmm. Chapter 11, you talk about the Georgia uh, incident, that raid in 1863. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, um, it was very important that the most famous black regiment of the whole Civil War was the 54th Massachusetts Infantry, commanded by Colonel Robert Gould Shaw. It was a subject of the, the movie Glory. And they, uh, like uh, other officers, Colonel Shaw and, and his men had fought a lot of them in the Army of the Potomac against the Confederate Army of the Northern Virginia, used to big stand-up stand up battles, you know, like at Antietam. But Montgomery ended up uh, being the um, brigade commander where he had his black regiment, the 2nd South Carolina Colored Infantry, that eventually would be named the 34th United States Colored Troops. But Montgomery basically got uh, Colonel Shaw and the 54th Massachusetts to participate on a raid on uh, Darien, Georgia, along the coast of Georgia. And they uh, uh, used steamboats, landed, and turns out there was no resistance. And they plundered the town of, of anything and everything that they could get. And then Montgomery ordered the burning of Darien. And Colonel Shaw uh, kind of reluctantly had to you know, abide by the order. But Shaw then wrote letters um, to uh, the Department of South Adjutant and then a letter home to his wife, Annie, where he uh, said he didn't really want to be an instrument of kind of this holy war that Montgomery was inflicting. Um, and so we really talk about the different uh, perspectives on abolitionism, where Montgomery believed in a, a hard war, physical destruction, um, carrying out this uh, great kind of vindictive war on slavery, where Shaw wanted to kind of stay within boundaries, and, and Thomas Wentworth Hickinson kind of the same way. So we have a, we feel a pretty good description there of the burning of Darien, Georgia, and uh, kind of the aftermath of that. You have more you want to add, Todd? Uh, no. Chapter 12, you talk about Fort Wagner. Now, mm-hmm. I thought this was really interesting, the July 4th program. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty cool too. Yeah. We, uh, what we wanted to try to do was, was to show a little bit, not just the battles, but also some of the activities that went on. So what happened is uh, Montgomery and uh, Colonel Shaw and their black regiments were on St. St. Simon's Island off the coast of Georgia, but then they were moved closer to Charleston because uh, uh, General Quincy Gilmore was going to lead this big advance on Charleston and it so happened that on St. Helena Island, there in South Carolina, along the coast, that on July 4th, there was this interesting um, abolitionist meeting. And uh, there's a wonderful description. We just quote a little bit of it where Colonel Shaw kind of described it. And he talks about these black ministers doing speeches and the women wearing these brightly colored dresses. And, and uh, they sang, um, a choir of black students, my country, tis of thee. And then Montgomery, or excuse me, Robert Gould Shaw, his parents were just diehard abolitionists. And there's this wonderful quote where uh, Colonel Shaw wrote to his mother afterward, can you imagine anything more wonderful than a colored abolitionist meeting 
on a South Carolina plantation. So we often talk about the Civil War being sort of the second American revolution where things were changing so rapidly. And uh, it was becoming a war to free nearly 4 million uh, African-Americans. And we really wanted to kind of tell that um, little anecdote there to give a little bit of light on the the fact that uh, African-Americans were very much participating in ending slavery, uh, supporting the U.S. war effort, you know, providing intelligence and knowledge that they had of where the war was being fought, and also enlisting as uh, black so- uh, black U.S. soldiers. By the time the war ended, about 180,000 African American men had enlisted in uh, black regiments to help support the U.S. war effort. Now let's come back to Colonel Montgomery and how he was sending money home, and then you talk about the speech that he gave to the black soldiers and it was concerning pay. Yes. Yeah. There's uh, um, with Montgomery. Um, <laughs> it's really fascinating. We have, and, and Todd and I talk about this in the book, we have places in Montgomery's life and anti-slavery career where we know a lot about what he was thinking and doing by, by his letters or interview by a newspaper man or something. And we only have this one series of letters Montgomery wrote to his wife in uh, late August, early September of 1863, outside of Fort Wagner, which is Morris Island, South Carolina. And it turns out that the 54th Massachusetts led an assault on Fort Wagner where they did not take the fort, but really showed their their courage. Uh, Colonel Robert Goldshaw was killed. And this is part of the approach onto South Carolina. And in the middle of all this, uh, they ended up laying siege to Fort Wagner and dig. they dug trenches in the sand. They had artillery and other weapons and uh, wire entanglements, a sort of a precursor to World War I in many ways. And in the middle of that, Montgomery wrote home to his wife describing, you know, they would lose, uh, you know, 10 to 12 men every day from uh, rifle and artillery fire while they were in the trenches. And then he ends up writing... Um, sending money home to his wife and instructed her on um, uh, making all these payments that needed to be made in the middle of, you know, this very bloody war that was happening. So it's really kind of uh, fascinating. And he even wrote um, home kind of matter of factly. He said, uh, Colonel Montgomery to his wife, Clorinda, I will send you more money soon if I live. And then matter of factly, he said, and if I die, you will get a pension, which will enable you to pay all the debts and live comfortably. So it's kind of uh, shows the kind of human side there. Now, in terms of Montgomery and the harangue that he did to the 54th Massachusetts, this was in uh, late September 1863. And what happened is, um, very unfortunately, black soldiers in 1863 were enlisted under the Militia Act of 1862, and they were paid Um, less than the white soldiers. White soldiers usually earned $13 a month and they got a $3 uniform allowance added on where black soldiers were paid $10 a month and the $3 uniform allowance deducted. So they netted $7 per month. And the men in the 54th Massachusetts, many of them had been free before the Civil War. They turned down pay rather than accept lower pay. And Montgomery confronted them on this. And there's a, a... Long speech, uh, Sergeant George E. Stevens, an African-American man, an abolitionist who was serving in the 54th Massachusetts, wrote this very long, detailed letter. 
And we quote a good part of it in our book where he described Montgomery. It was very uh, racist. He, he uh, uh, talked about how their ancestors had, you know, worshiped crocodiles, very, very racist, horrible stuff. And he said that you should accept your pay, that this is your chance to help win the war and end slavery. And you should just accept the lower pay, you know, well, and, and he didn't say it in this speech, but he did in another letter. He actually would try to get equal pay for black soldiers, which finally happened later in 1864. But anyway, we do have uh, several pages there where we describe this interaction Montgomery had um, with uh, some of the men in camp of the 54th Massachusetts. I would I would add something there. Um, it kind of speaks to what I said earlier that uh, it that it was Clarinda who was at home for almost two years and kind of helping run the show there. Um, but uh, also, I believe Montgomery uh, bought he bought some new land that adjoined his farm, which uh, I think that was partly what he was instructing her was uh, to make sure that uh, th- they had that payment. Um, and I don't, I, you know, it's hard to put yourself in Montgomery's mind, especially there during the siege of Fort Wagner. Um, and uh, you, know, you talk about the stress and the strain and, and, and maybe those letters home, which I, you know, I'm sure that there were more that maybe didn't survive. Uh, perhaps that was one way for him to detach himself, if, however briefly, um, for, hmm. from something away from the carnage there that, that he was witnessing, you know, on a daily basis. Yes. Now, how did he deal with men who deserted? Because there were quite a few desertions. Yeah, that is um, sort of an unfortunate part of the story. We do f- find examples from other officers like Colonel Shaw and, and Higginson and others who uh, state that Montgomery, um, without use, without a court-martial proceeding, he did have some deserters executed by firing squad. It was very, uh, very unfortunate. He believed he needed to kind of instill that the discipline and the fear but what happened is um, for Montgomery, like the men in the about 150, 150 men who were freed during the Cumbie River raid, they were marched to camp and they became soldiers. They formed the bases for Company G and Company H of the Second South Carolina. And they weren't given a choice. They were just marched to camp, kind of like a draft, like you're in the army. And some of the men uh, resisted this. And uh, when they had a chance to, to escape camp, to desert, they, they did so. Although the overwhelming majority of men in Montgomery's uh, regiment, they did um, stay and serve. So it really is sort of, uh, well, it is a very unfortunate part of Montgomery's story that, that uh, he did order these executions. Um, we did discover, though, in some of the uh, morning reports where Montgomery had, had given an amnesty that if they returned to camp, um, they would be accepted back if they did it on their own. And we do have accounts, uh, like in the book in, in October 1863, one day where uh, three soldiers, and they listed it by name, they returned from desertion. Um, so it uh, kind of shows the uh, kind of complexities. And, and Montgomery, in one of his letters, describes that the, the black soldiers acted like uh, basically white soldiers under similar circumstances, and that they, they were very much uh, human. 
In chapter 14, The Return to Kansas, The Last Fight, um, he's now been fighting for 10 years. Tell us about what happened when he returned. You want to take that, Todd? Well, when he returned, he was in very poor health. Um, witnesses later recount that he uh, struggled, uh, you know, to, to actually do any type of physical labor. Um, in, in fact, when, when, the, uh, when the price raid occurs in October of 1864, uh, he had just noted to George Stearns, who they kept in contact with each other, although not near as much. And he had said that he was at that point, uh, after he'd been home roughly three months, uh, he had he was just able to uh, sit at the table and eat breakfast. So uh, when he came back, he was, um, like I said, in, in very poor health. And, and to be honest, he never fully regained that health until his death in 1871. Yeah, and just to kind of add on to that, Montgomery, we think chronic asthma was an issue, and the, they talk about other things too, like inflammation of the, of the liver and other things, but he never really got his constitution back. When it, interestingly, we found in a, a pension claim for Montgomery, he did apply for a pension after the Civil War, which he did not get during his lifetime. His widow, uh, Clarinda Montgomery, did. Uh, at one point, uh, it said he was five foot eleven, but weighed one hundred and twenty-eight pounds. So he really had a tough time f- physically, uh, really not not fully regaining his health from his time uh, fighting during the Civil War. Any guesses about why he didn't receive the pension? Well, back in the, those days, the um, veterans had to prove that their disability came about during the war. And we don't really know. We don't have documentation about why it was rejected. But the the people reviewing it in uh, in Washington uh, may have thought, well, maybe he had something before the war. So uh, that's our our best guess. Yes. Well, he finally died, and his wife had to deal with the probate. And you were talking about the movie Glory and how they got a lot of it wrong. Tell us more (laughs) about that. Go ahead, Todd. Well, yes, they, uh, you know, they implied that he was, um, you know, dur- during these raids, just like the accusations during Bleeding Kansas, that, uh, you know, he had been stealing himself rich. Um, uh, some of his uh, associates, um, you know, they, they talk about how, uh, yes, he he came out of the war just as poor as he went in. I don't know how you know exactly. You you can kind of uh, you, you can kind of argue either way. Um, he he ended up having uh, a lot of land, but was kind of uh, he had some land wealth, but was always cash poor, as as you stated. Uh, he had about a uh, $3,000, uh, you know, debt when he died that uh, that he had uh, left Clorinda with. And, um, you know, yeah, so, 
Um, I'll let you add some to that, Dave, and then I might sure. jump back in. Sure. Well, it's, I think, really important to note that when Montgomery returned home from the war, uh, he obviously was in poor health. He got land through the Homestead Act, 160 acres. Eventually, we found 752 acres the Montgomery family owned. And it, crucially, Montgomery helped uh, newly freed people get, kind of get a new start. Um, one of the Lynn County historians years ago t- said that uh, uh, African-American families had shanties all over his farm. And Todd, through a lot of research there in Mound City at the courthouse and land records, discovered a lot of black families getting land near the Montgomery property, including some of the first, uh, we think, first black homesteaders in the whole United States. Yes, to add to that, Deidre, um, so when Montgomery left in December of 1862, his son Charles, his oldest son Charles was at home, although he would later join the same his, his dad's regiment, and he would not return until after the war. Uh, the second uh, oldest son was Evan, and uh, he was, uh, well, when his dad left, I believe he was uh, 15 years old. But looking at some of the homestead records um, that uh, uh, one of the uh, black farm laborers that it's obvious that that's who was helping farm all of those acres. Um, and if you look at the 1865 census, uh, there are 69 African-American men, women, and children uh, listed before and after the Montgomery family on the 1865 census, which shows that they were live, living either very close by or on the Montgomery farm. Uh, one of his pension witnesses um, said that he had uh, been working for the Montgomerys uh, for five years. So uh, on those homestead records uh, where Montgomery is actually a, a witness for uh, one of these early African-American homesteaders, um, he claimed that he had known this man since 1862, which I think the timing there is is very, very significant because that's the year Montgomery left. Um, so, uh, and it's also uh, probably more than coincidental that Montgomery's second son, Evan, he filed for his own homestead in 1863, and it was just a week later that one of these uh, black farm laborers also filed on his homestead. Um, So personally, I don't think that's uh, just a coincidence. Uh, I think that um, the African-American small community there, which kind of grew up organically, I think that they were uh, helping Clorinda run that farm. Well, what is the overall message you want the reader to leave with once they finish your book? Um, If you don't mind, Todd, I'll go first and let you add on. Okay. I'd say one of the things um, we try to show through the life and and the anti-slavery career of this one man, James Montgomery, his war on slavery, it's a difference a person can make in a larger cause. You know, uh, 
the time of the Civil War, great uh, conflict, hundreds of thousands of deaths. Um, but the war led to a new birth of freedom, as, as Abraham Lincoln put it. And Montgomery was one of those uh, anti-slavery soldiers. Of course, it took the collective efforts of more than 2 million U.S. soldiers and sailors to defeat slavery. And I would say one of our things is we show Montgomery with his very singular kind of anti-slavery abolitionist legacy uh, where he he uh, fought in Kansas before the Civil War, led uh, this guerrilla force, the Jayhawkers, fighting the pro-slavery forces. He led a white re- a regiment of white soldiers early in the Civil War that freed hundreds of people in western Missouri, led a regiment of black soldiers. And at the Battle of Olusty in Florida in 1864, the biggest battle of fought on Florida soil, he led two black regiments in this very bloody battle. And during the Battle of Westport, this huge battle in western Missouri, uh, he led the 6th Kansas State Militia, the Lynn County Militia, that had both uh, 13 companies of white men and two companies of black men fighting. So he was this really radical, uh, fascinating figure. Okay, yeah. I, I would add, um, you know, that uh, throughout the book, we are trying to show how Montgomery changed, how he evolved. And that, uh, you know, he died at a very young age at, at 57. And, and if he would have survived much longer, I, I think that, that he would have continued to evolve. But he, he also, he really devoted the, a good chunk of his life for what he believed in, which was the destruction of slavery. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you'll be working on? Go ahead, Dave. Oh, okay. Well, uh, thank you, Deidre. This was really wonderful. Todd and I love the opportunity to talk about uh, James Montgomery. We spent more than a decade researching and writing this. And one of my follow-up projects, um, I want to write a book about the 2nd South Carolina Colored Infantry, or the 34th United States Colored Troops that Montgomery commanded during the war. Um, a lot of the material did not end up in this book, so I'm hoping to follow up um, and describe the the officers, uh, white officers and the African-American enlisted men who uh, served their country in that regiment. So my next project kind of revolves around this, this story of uh, not just the African-American uh, homesteaders uh, that, that developed there around the, the Montgomery farm, um, but uh, all through uh, Lynn and Bourbon County. Um, it, like I said, it's, it's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Uh, so that's what my next project is going to be. Well, we'll be looking forward to reading those new books. Thank you again for being on the podcast. Thanks, Deidre. We appreciate it.